In our reading from Deuteronomy this morning, we hear Moses giving one of his last speeches to Israel. He's more than a hundred years old, and the nation he has led for so long stands at the edge of the promised land. He offers some if-then scenarios about what will happen if the people follow God's commandments, and what will happen if they don't. Obeying is good, disobeying is bad. Blessings and curses, choosing to flourish or choosing to perish. We all know that some of what is written in Deuteronomy is true. We have all witnessed what happens in families, in communities, in churches, when leaders or members of the group are greedy, dishonest, violent, or lustful. We've also witnessed the blessings that come to many of those who live honest, loving, God-filled lives. But, and I know there are those of you who are already thinking, but, we also know that bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. So why should we do the right thing? Why follow God's commandments if all our hard work isn't going to get us what he promised? Why follow God's commandments if the bad guys are going to win? When loving God and playing fair doesn't seem to bring any blessings, but only more pain. Why shouldn't we just make our own choices? We love choices. Coke or Pepsi, paper or plastic, the Chiefs or the Eagles. <laughs> we work hard for our choices. Our soldiers fight so that we have the right to vote, so that we have some level of control over how we live our lives. Why can't God trust us to make the right choices? And that brings us to today's Gospel, where Jesus takes those same commandments and those same issues and problems and gives them a shot of steroids. This part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount mirrors Moses' speech in Deuteronomy, in that he is teaching his disciples preparing them, even though they don't know it yet, for life without his leadership. He's giving them the tools they need to make the right choices because he knows that they, like us, are imperfect beings, living in an imperfect world, where making the right choices is not as easy as it sounds. Jesus reminds his listeners of what the Torah says when he says, you have heard it said, and then he lists the commandment, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not swear falsely. His disciples are very familiar with these commandments. And then he adds his own twist, but I say to you. He's not replacing the commandment, he's digging deeper, giving it more heft, providing the commandment with additional substance that will guide the disciples to make better choices. Let's go back to the start of this passage, where Jesus is talking about the commandment against murder. Most people find themselves on the right side of this one. It's usually a much easier commandment to follow than, say, stealing or honoring your mother or father. But in fact, this law against committing, and this law against committing murder is usually the one we can check off without a second thought. But Jesus ups the ante. He equates getting angry with murder. Insulting someone, Jesus says, is the same as murder. Isn't that a bit of a leap? <laughs> Think about it for a minute. What does anger do to us over time? What do insults do to us over time? How do they mold us? How do they affect our thoughts and eventually our actions? 
What happens when our anger gets the better of us? Do we yell? Do we hit? Maybe we figure out ways to get even with someone. Maybe we say something to our friends. Maybe we say something online. We hear about violent acts every day. School shootings, peaceful protests turned ugly, domestic violence. We witness anger and violence with such frequency that we become numb to the news, despite the fact that many of us, tragically most of us, know someone who has been a victim of violence or we have been victims ourselves. It's less often that we learn about the cause of the offender's actions. What drove them to act that way? This isn't the forum for an in-depth examination of the cycle of violence in our society, but it seems that we might all agree that many people, when they commit acts of aggression, can trace it back to something slightly less violent, perhaps less aggressive, that nevertheless left a mark, planted a seed, that festered and grew until it burst forth in that more sinful act. It doesn't take much. A harsh word from a parent, a teacher, a friend, bullying in person or online, disagreements, business deals that go sour, sibling rivalry. There's no shortage of ways to become angry. But what happens next? Sometimes we work it out, or we agree to disagree, or perhaps we decide to have it out with that person right then and there. Or maybe we distance ourselves, preferring to avoid that person or parent or friend, sometimes for so long that before we know it, years have gone by, we might not be able to even recall what it was we were angry about. But we know it must be something, because why else would we have drifted so far apart? We all have these different levels of conflict in our lives, and things weren't any different in the first century. Why is Jesus so concerned with us being nice? Why do we have to work it out? Why do we have to love everyone? What does it matter, after all, if you harbor a little resentment, perhaps justly deserved? Reconciliation is really hard. If it were easy, we wouldn't be having this discussion, and Jesus wouldn't have made this point. We know how challenging it can be. Friendships, families, nations are torn apart because people have opposing views and cannot reconcile. But why is this so important to Jesus? Why is he driving this point home with such intensity? Jesus is driving this point home because in resenting that person, your friend, your relative, your coworker, in harboring anger against them, you are preventing the power of God's grace in their lives. And by doing so, you are also preventing the power of his grace in yours. I want you to try something right now, sitting right where you are. I want you to feel angry. And as you feel that anger, I want you to try and clench your heart. Go ahead, just for a few seconds, clench your heart. And now notice what happened. Many of you closed your eyes, you tightened your stomach muscles, your shoulders moved forward a little bit, you moved inward, away from the others around you. When our hearts are clenched in anger, they're shut tight against love. When our hearts are clenched in anger, we shut each other out, we shut God out. And that anger, unless it is resolved, doesn't just go away. 
We can stuff it deep down inside, but it's still there. And that anger, that dark spot on our soul, doesn't just damage our relationships with each other, it keeps us from a right relationship with God, because God demands purity. Back in Jesus' time, you could not offer a sacrifice in the temple unless you had undergone ritual purification. Our modern-day version of this is that we do not take communion unless we have confessed our sins and are at peace with our neighbor. We may think this is just a ritual, something we do each week out of habit, but it is much more than that. That is why Jesus gives this speech. That is why Jesus talks about the importance, the essential nature of reconciliation. Jesus cannot deny or eliminate the existence of anger and all the actions that go along with it. He can't prohibit anger. We all get angry. We can't help it. We're human, and we are sinful. If we didn't sin, after all, we wouldn't need God. But what exactly is Jesus asking for? What is he trying to show us and teach us? He is teaching us that anger can be transformed. We can be transformed through reconciliation, through living as peacemakers. Now, it's true there are some situations where it is unhealthy or dangerous or impossible for us to reconcile, and God understands that. But those situations should be the exception rather than the rule. So how do we start? We start by making choices. All day, every day, we have choices to make. We like those choices, right? Remember, Coke or Pepsi, Democrat or Republican, paper or plastic. We fight for those choices, to do what we want, to say what we want. Choices are great when things go our way. What about the choices we must make when things have turned against us? That's when you have to unclench your heart. The choices that Jesus wants us to make are often not easy. Shaking hands instead of shaking your fist, showing empathy instead of contempt, holding back with the harsh word or cruel joke you think is funny or harmless, but that might plant a seed you never intended to sow. By loving each other, by making peace with each other, being compassionate and honest and fair with each other, not as part of a ritual, not just for show, but for real, by making choices that we as Christians know we should make, those choices eventually get easier and easier. Right relationship with God is grounded in a right relationship with your neighbor, not the neighbor you're already friends with, the other one, the noisy one, the one who leaves his trash cans out all day, the messy one, the poor one, the one who doesn't look like us, the one whom we have never taken the time to greet. We are imperfect beings living in an imperfect world, but Jesus has given us the tools to turn things around. God is willing to forgive us for our sins, for all of them. It's only logical that he should ask us to forgive the sins of those around us. Remember how we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? We say it all the time. We're going to say it in just a few minutes. But how often do we mean it? How often do we follow through? So what will it be? Coke or Pepsi? Blessings or curses? God's way or our way? Flourish or perish? 
We have choices to make. Choose wisely.